0: Welcome, everybody, to another episode in our Myelin Institute podcast. Today, we are really pleased to be able to welcome, as our special guest, Tim Harford, who's a senior economist for the Financial Times and the presenter of Radio 4's More or Less, as well as a podcast called Cautionary Tales. Tim has just published an excellent book. Uh, which I have here in front of me. So hence the uh, authentic rustling sounds called How to Make the World Add Up, 10 Rules for Thinking Differently About Numbers. Uh, I was given this as a birthday present by uh, my wife and very much enjoy reading it. Uh, I can certainly recommend it to all of our listeners as a possible Christmas present if you're still uh, doing some last minute Christmas shopping. So welcome, Tim.
1: Well, thank you very much, Tim, and I'm very impressed by your wife's excellent taste and discernment.
0: <laughs> well, I must admit, she knows me quite well. I am, I have to admit, a loyal listener, as you always put it, of more or less. So uh, something of a fan, which is why I'm so pleased to, to have you on the podcast today. Now, if we go straight into the book, you have, uh, if you like, a kind of 11th rule of thumb, one rule of thumb to rule them all, if you like, which is be curious. Now, this tempts me to ask you, before we get down to the kind of nitty gritty of the book, for a bit of biographical info, I want to ask how and why did you get into journalism? And as a supplementary to that, given that um, many academics like me are also driven primarily by curiosity. I just wondered if you ever thought of going down the academic route rather than the journalistic one.
1: So let's start with the the negative. Why didn't I become an academic? I did teach for a year at University College Cork in Ireland and I had a wonderful time. I was very young. I'd just finished my undergraduate degree. I really had no right to be teaching other undergraduates There was a historical accident behind that, so I was surrounded by more senior colleagues, and they they loved the sort of the collegiate uh, life, and decided to go back to Oxford and do a research master's degree, a two year master's degree in economics, which I was tough and and I enjoyed it, but at the end of it, my thesis supervisor, who's a wonderful man and also a very frank fellow discouraged me from doing a PhD. He said, you're perfectly good, perfectly capable of doing a PhD, You're perfectly capable of being an academic, but I think you probably do better somewhere else. I don't think you'd be a star and I don't think you'd be happy being an academic. And that was a very good piece of advice. So I didn't do my PhD. I did the master's degree and enjoyed that. I did various other things in corporate life. Uh, I briefly worked as a management consultant. I was very bad at that. I worked as a research assistant for the economist John Kay. That was great. I also spent some time working in the scenario planning team at Shell International, the oil company. The scenario planning team, very weird place, full of interesting people, all trying to come up with long range stories about what's going to happen to the politics of Latin America over the next 20 years. I mean, really, really weird that a company is willing to pay for that what an interesting place to work
0: were they misfits and weirdos
1: i think my wife and i were misfits there i met my wife there so very happy memories of that and um we didn't quite fit in but we're not so much weirdos as just a very diverse group of people so you know we had a a, a guy with very deep uh expertise in energy what, what was going to happen to solar over the next 20 years he called that one right i have to say but one of my uh bosses was the uh, former chief of staff to Joe Stiglitz, Nobel Prize winning economist, when Stiglitz was at the World Bank. And and this gentleman was now the chief economist of Shell. So I'm my media boss. So he had that, you know, that contact with the Nobel Prize winner. He had that experience of working at the World Bank. So you was just a very diverse group of people, not oil people at all. Not that there's anything wrong with oil people there's something wrong with oil there's nothing wrong with oil people you know it was an interesting place to work and it was really and it was there that i met an author called david badanis who had written a wonderful book about the history of ideas in physics called e equals mc squared and i told david i wish i could do that for economics i wish i could write a book like e equals mc squared only for economics and he sort of raised an eyebrow and said well you don't really need anybody to give you permission to do that and so i did And it was called The Undercover Economist. And um, it took a very long time to get published. But when it did get published, it did extraordinarily well. And about the same time as that, I managed to get some foot in the door at the Financial Times. And everything else, the BBC, it's all sort of started from there. My overall lesson here is it's totally fine to spend your 20s not knowing what you want to do as long as you're gaining a variety of experiences and doing some interesting things with some interesting people.
0: I think that's that's really, really good advice, especially I think now when you know jobs are obviously at a premium especially for graduates you know they, they do begin to worry that they're not going to land the right thing first time and it isn't always necessarily the case that they have to i think i think that's a, a really good point that actually takes me on to to uh, another of your books really as a way of kind of segueing into the um, the recent one which is is messy and for those of you who haven't read that that's not a biography of the argentinian footballing genius it's actually a pee and a praise to responsiveness to resilience to to flexibility for for people who aren't necessarily loyal listeners to your BBC Radio 4 More or Less program. What led you then to go on from writing uh, The Undercover Economist, 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy, Messy, etc., to this particular book, How to Make the World Add Up? What was the motivation for this one?
1: Well, for a long time, I resisted the idea of writing a book about uh, using statistics. I had been presenting More or Less for nearly 15 years. Um, more, More or Less is a a wonderful idea for a program. It's not my idea. It's Andrew Dillnot and Michael Blastland's idea, but I took over from them a long time ago. And the book, the the um, the radio program basically examines numbers that have come up in the news, or listener questions, uh, and just tries to make sense of them. And sometimes says this number is, you know, is is misleading. This politician is lying. But often also goes deeper and says, well, where does this number come from? Isn't it interesting? Isn't the world a surprising place? So I was being encouraged by various people to write the book of the series, as it were, a book about numbers. And I resisted. The reason I resisted was because I just felt it had been done so many times, often very well, I didn't really feel I had anything to add. And what changed was the sense that actually these other books were missing something important, two important things, in fact. The first was the restatement of the fact that actually statistics can help us understand the world. Mm. I think a lot of my fellow geeks take that for granted, but they don't plant their feet and you know firmly and say it. We're led into this trap of always talking about misinformation, always talking about lies or. These guys lied about this. Those guys lied about that. Um, somebody made a mistake. You know, this newspaper headline's completely wrong. And because it's fun and it's an engaging way to talk about statistics, but if that's all you ever do, you leave your audience with um with the impression that well, it's all lies, damned lies, and statistics, is it not? And and it's not. It really isn't. And it felt very important to say that. And I talk in the beginning of the book about Daryl Huff's book, How to Lie with Statistics very good, very successful book, which ended up going to a very dark place and, and Daryl Huff went to a very dark place. And I wanted to push back against that. It's not just um, Daryl Huff. Think about Ben Goldacre's brilliant book, Bad Science. John Alan Paulus wrote uh, Innumeracy. These are terrific books, but they're, all, they're framed about framed around mistakes. Mm. And I thought it's a more positive way to put to put things. The other thing that I felt was missing from a lot of books with I think the wonderful exception of Hans Rosling's book, Factfulness, was um, a sense that our psychology matters. What we believe or don't believe is very much a question of our preconceptions, of our political affiliations, our our emotional responses. That became very, very clear to me while trying to fact-check the 2016 referendum. But there are plenty of other examples of that. And so it struck me as slightly weird to write a book all about statistics as though none of that was going on as though all people wanted was a little bit of technical advice and then and then they get it right and we need so much more than that so those were the two big things I wanted to put into how to make the world add up first a more positive view of the potential uses of statistics second and perhaps more importantly an acknowledgement that we are human we are frail We make a lot of mistakes and we make a lot of mistakes sometimes because we want to make mistakes.
0: And is that in some ways part of an overall move in economics, although some people would say it needs to be faster than it actually is, towards moving away, if you like, from homo economicus, this idea that, you know, men and women are rational calculators towards uh, uh, an appreciation of the insights of behavioural psychology?
1: I think it is part of that. Um, Although, I mean, this book is not really an economics book. Obviously, I am an economist. And so I've had a increased appreciation for what psychology and other social sciences have to offer. There's my curiosity kicking in. Just, mm-hmm. you know, for a while, economics was the most interesting thing to me and was full of wonders. But after a while, you start to broaden your horizons, and there are mm-hmm. other interesting subjects. Um, you know, you said, well, maybe for some people that shift isn't happening fast enough. I'm not sure about that. Uh, Richard Thaler, who won the Nobel Prize in economics a couple of years ago noted behavioural economist. He was writing a regular column in the Journal of Economic Perspectives, which is a very uh, well-respected economic journal, scholarly journal. He was writing that in the 1980s. I I remember reading... Classic Thaler articles. When I was an undergraduate in, in the 1990s, I was I was taught as, a, as an undergraduate. I was I was given Kahneman Tversky's stuff to read. This is before they won the Nobel Prize, or before Kahneman won the Nobel Prize. So this stuff has been around for a while, and I think it's pretty mainstream. I mean, Schiller won the Nobel Prize. He's, he does behavioral macro. Akalov won the Nobel Prize. Thomas Schelling won the Nobel Prize. I mean, they're all these are all people who, one way or another, have. A, a, a deep interest in behavioral science okay. as well as just economic ideas. Okay. So that shift I think is well underway. A debate with um Rory Sutherland who's a uh, you know, very interesting uh, expert on marketing and he was having a go at economists and how you know economists have this very unrealistic view of human nature. And I just said well all these all these people have won have won Nobel prizes they're all I mean they're all in their 80s now <laughs> they've you know they've been around a long time. He was saying well Akerlof... He, you know, he really struggled to publish his you know, his very influential paper that in the end won him the Nobel Prize, to which my response is, yes, but that was, that was published in 1970, I and mean, all this happened before I was born. Sure, okay, he had some trouble in 1969 finding a publisher for this piece, but this shift has been underway for a very long time, and I think right. most economists are well aware of behavioral economics, and a lot of behavioral economics work gets published in the very best places now. I also find it fascinating that it's so common to hear people say, well, what economists don't understand is X. And you think, okay, I was taught that as an undergraduate 25 years ago. I think we've got the memo.
0: Now, there's an awful lot in this book about the downsides of partisanship. And I wondered, in what ways do you think being strongly affiliated is particularly detrimental to us as individuals and to society in more general uh, when it comes to, you know, talking about numbers. I should say there's
1: nothing wrong with having a political view, and there's with the, the world has has often been made much better by people with very strong partisan affiliations. Of course, it's often been made worse by people with strong partisan affiliations too. But as a as an aid to thinking, it doesn't really help. As an aid to action, great. But as an aid to really thinking clearly, it doesn't help. I mean, the simplest way to to think of this is um some research done back in the 50s, if I remember, with the title They Saw a Game. And the the two psychologists whose name names escape me, sorry, but they showed students a film of a particularly nasty game of college American football, where I think someone got a broken leg and there was a lot of fouls and and they asked the students to Really rate very simple measures of what you would say was objective truth: like which side committed more fouls. You just watch the film and count them. It's not hard, and that people were hugely influenced by their their partisanship, which team they supported. This is not a complicated question. It's just you know, do your own eyes deceiving you, and the Yale. Um, scholar dan kahan um who's a psychology and law and political science and i I get confused as to all his affiliations he's very interesting guy he repeated that more recently with he showed people videos of a protest outside a building and he told some people well this is a protest in support of gay rights in the military and he told other people this is an anti-abortion protest outside an abortion clinic so you've got the same video, the same footage, a different backstory, and then asked students to say, well, did, did, the, did the protesters yell at people? Did they obstruct people's entrance into the building? That kind of thing. And again, people's partisan affiliation changed the, what they saw with their own eyes and what they wrote down. So if it's going to change something in that profound a way, it will certainly change the way we parse particular factual claims or statistical claims up partisanship really, really matters. There's that. There's also this, the fact that we've always had an ability to put ourselves in bubbles. That ability, I think, has only grown stronger with social media. You just choose who you want to follow and who you don't want to follow, who you want to block and who you don't want to block, which podcasts you want to subscribe to. And if you care to do that, you can just surround yourself in a in a bubble where you're only hearing people who agree with you. And the only way that dissenting voices intrude is if somebody... Kind of read. Oh, Piers Morgan said this thing. Look at this idiotic thing Piers Morgan say. See, you, you never you'll, you'll never hear anybody saying. Oh, Piers Morgan said this very sensible thing. It'll only be the idiotic thing. You'll only hear the views from the other side when they're outrageous and and being commented on because they're outrageous. None of this helps us.
0: You make a very interesting point actually about politicians, and you say that all they have to do is to persuade us to doubt evidence that challenges are our gut instincts. So what can we do about that?
1: Well, this is where we come into the, the 10 rules of thumb. I mean They're sometimes described as 10 commandments, but I think of them as sort of habits of mind, things that it's good to try and just sort of instinctively do. The first thing I would say is just notice that you have an emotional reaction to a claim. Emotions are very powerful. Simply observing them. I know this sounds like mindfulness meditation, but it's, it's really true. Simply observing, ha, huh, this headline, this tweet, makes me feel something. It makes me feel vindicated. It makes me feel outraged. It makes me feel smug. Whatever it is, just notice that before you do anything. And once you've noticed, you might go, ah, oh, yeah, okay. Maybe I should think a little harder. Maybe I shouldn't just be retweeting this. Just this sort of reflection. That gets us into the second thing, which is to slow down. And of course, social media does not encourage slowing down. It makes it very easy to do thumbs up, share, retweet, like, very, very quick. But that's not not a particularly great idea if you're trying to think through things. And I have become fascinated by a particular class of um, sort of lo- not quite, I guess they're logic puzzles. They're called cognitive reflection puzzles. They've been made famous by Daniel Kahneman. They're actually invented by a behavioural economist called Shane Frederick. The quintessential cognitive reflection puzzle is one where there is a simple, tempting answer that is wrong, and the right answer isn't very hard to get, but you don't get there because you. Your mind leaps to the wrong answer and you just go, I've solved this problem. I think a lot of the statistical claims, the headlines, the tweets we see, they're actually like cognitive reflection puzzles. There are fallacies in there. There are idiocies. It's not hard to see but you do have to slow down for a second and think and very often we don't.
0: It's problematic isn't it because of course you know evolutionarily we we are pattern seeking creatures so we do tend to to make links that aren't necessarily there in order to satisfy that aspect of our psychology.
1: And a lot of the patterns are in fact highly instructive but but not all, not all of them. Um and we're not only pattern seeking creatures we're social creatures. Yeah so i mean i talk at one point in the book about uh, people's views of climate change if we're honest most of us have a view the view that we have on climate change we have because people around us that we trust have that view too i'm pretty sure i i know what's going on with climate change i'm fairly confident Mm -hmm. that i'm kind of aware of you know what's true and what's nonsense but if i'm honest it's not because i read all the papers it's not because i Have a doctorate in climate science. It's because people I trust tell me that this is the thing to believe, and that's true for every. We all like that. We know whether it's the climate deniers or the 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 uh, extinction rebellion people. Everyone's just taking a cue from the people around them.
0: You make this really good point. I think that you know about the the social consequences of disagreeing with those around you are often far more damaging, as it were, than the kind of practical consequences of being wrong in a way. Absolutely. What
1: I do. What I think about the climate is not actually going to affect the climate in any meaningful way because there are 8 billion other people on this planet. It's not like, you know, if I believed that a vaccine couldn't protect me from COVID and was in fact a plot by the deep state or by Bill Gates and I refused to have a COVID vaccine, it is conceivable that I would suffer for that choice and more conceivable that, for example, my father would suffer because of my choice, because I infected him. But no one's going to suffer if I have the wrong view of climate change, really. But the social consequences, my friends think my views are idiotic or outrageous or I've fallen for a Chinese con. Those those consequences are quite real. So it's not stupid to care more about fitting in than being right. It's not stupid at all. Mm. And I think if we're honest, most of us do care more about fitting in than
0: being Mm. right. Now you you recommend that we all consume a, a balanced diet of information: some fast, some some slow. What would you personally recommend apart from uh, obviously more or less a subscription to the FT and and, and buying your book?
1: Yes, well you nailed it. <laughs> what else is there to so? Well, uh, one of the things I I suggest is that we should try to consume more uh, slower-paced information. I, I'm by no means the only person to suggest this. Um, Max Rosa, the creator of Our World in Data, I think is particularly good on this point. You're probably going to learn more for the same amount of news consumed. You're going to learn more if you read a, a weekly or twice monthly source of news than a daily source of news. And you'll learn a lot more from a high quality daily source of news than you will from a similar amount of time, even if you're following high quality people on Twitter. Just the the noise or the the daily news cycle or the hourly news cycle. There's so much noise. There's so much stuff that isn't going to matter in the long run. And the more you slow things down, the, the more wisdom I think you're likely to to get from the news. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, I I know it's it's weird because I do write for a daily newspaper and I do think the Financial Times is a very good newspaper. But for a newspaper person, I am I am more detached from the news. Mm. than my colleagues. I will often plan a column weeks in advance because this is, this seems to be an interesting thing to write mm. about sometime. And I'm not looking for a news hook. I don't think that's entirely mis- mistaken.
0: And you also recommend um, on a slightly different note that we hold a few landmark numbers in our head. Um, I thought this was really interesting. Can you give our listeners, you know, an example or two and, and say why you think it's worth doing that?
1: Let me give you a a, a case in point. So, this summer, Matt Hancock said if everyone in the country who's overweight lost five pounds, the NHS would save 100 million pounds over five years. And lots of people emailed me and said, because I'm I'm the more or less guy, I was outrageous. How does he know this? What's the evidence base for this? But my response was, hang on, let's just think back up a second. What's he said? He said. 100 million pounds over five years is what the NHS is going to save. I happen to know, landmark number, 67 million people in the country. So that's one pound fifty per person. Or if your mental math is not great, it's a bit more than a pound a person. It's less than two pounds a person. Mm. It's not hard to figure that out. Over five years. So you're actually talking about 30 pence a person. So what Matt Hancock said, I don't really know why he would say this. But basically, if everyone in the country who's overweight lost five pounds, the NHS would save a totally trivial amount of money per person, 30p. You can do that really fast. You don't really need a calculator. You don't really need Google if you have a few landmark numbers in your head. So landmark numbers would include what is the population of the country I live in? Possibly, you know, what, what's, what's GDP? How much money is spent in the country in total in a particular year? Off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you what the UK GDP is, but it's in the ballpark of, sort of between 1500, billion and 2,000 $2, billion, it's probably closer to 2,000 billion these days. Uh, you don't need to have it nailed down. you just need to have a sort of a, a, a rough sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I got this idea from a guy called Andrew Elliott, who you know what goes around comes around because he's a big fan of more or less, and he wrote a book called "Is That a Big Number?" Mm-hmm. But he, he said, well, we just, you should just know that the Empire State Building's kind of a bit less than 400 meters tall and that a bed is two meters long. And if you want to know the size of you know, the size of an airship, you can compare it in your mind to the Empire State Building, which is useful if you've ever seen the Empire State Building. If you want to know how big a, a room is, just think about it. How much is that in beds? How many beds could I fit into that space? That sort of thing. But what what I'm getting at here is just the idea that all of the numbers that surround us don't make any sense at all unless you've got something to compare them to. Yeah. My friend Matt Parker Says you know, we've got friendly numbers and if you've got a strange number uh, you know a number that's a stranger that you don't understand you get one of your friendly numbers to introduce you to the stranger. So you know if, if someone tells me that the R one hundred one is three hundred meters long, the airship that crashed in the nineteen thirties, if you want to hear more, listen to the Cautionary Tales podcast. You think the the um you know the R one hundred one is about about three hundred meters long. Well, now I'm thinking, okay, if you stood that on its head, then it's kind of nearly as big as the Empire State Building. That's really big. I've suddenly got a picture of it in my mind.
0: It's what I was going to say, because on the one hand, you know, we, we aim for precision. Uh, and on the other hand, actually, sometimes precision, it can almost be the enemy of understanding. It's
1: very interesting you say we aim for precision. I don't aim for precision at all.
0: In fact, my um, my
1: editors are always kind of grumbling that I, I will file these columns and they'll be, they're like, well, that number's not quite right. I'm like, well, it's it's a round number and it's the closest round number to the true figure and we don't gain anything from adding extra decimal points i will say oh, it's about 50 dollars or whatever it's about you know 600 million uh, and i'll say well you, but it's not it's not exactly 600 million it's like, no that's why i said about for most purposes that's fine there are certain things we need to be incredibly precise about but most of these sort of numbers in politics and social science what's the cost to the uk of a no deal brexit versus a, you know a a, a deal um we don't really know we can make estimates but there's absolutely no point in the estimate being anything more than a real ballpark figure any precision is completely misleading
0: i mean that that comes on to another point i wanted to raise which is this question about method in in social science in in particular it seems to me that an awful lot of social science ink anyway is is spilled sort of torturing the evidence until it confesses you know something or anything that seems to meet statistical but uh, but not necessarily if you like real world significance do you ever worry that um you know some of the research that you read some of the academics perhaps that you read kind of overcomplicate things so they end up kind of getting getting so interested in the trees that they meet the oh sorry they miss the 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 forest as it were staring them in the face and i'm thinking here actually in the debate about lockdowns because you know if you get into the weeds of uh of lockdown you can perhaps argue that you know they don't work as well as, as some people suggest and yet if you step back and look just at a very simple graph of you know cases and uh when restrictions come in, it does seem to me pretty obvious that they do make a difference. I just wonder what you thought of that.
1: You can certainly get lost in detail. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember having this argument with with people in the first wave of COVID where we're talking about, you know, there's this debate over lockdowns, how many lives will lockdown save, or is there a better way? And uh, I would get emails saying, oh, the infection fatality rate of this thing is actually one in – Two thousand or one twenty thousand is not nothing. You know you've got the eight IFRs completely wrong, and look, look at this and all the, all the sort of statistical detail. And you just step back and go, look at what's happening in the hospitals in Italy. This is nothing to do with Imperial College's modelling or incorrect assumptions about the R number or you know mistakes about the infection infection fatality rate. just look what is happening, mm. it is sometimes important to be able to take a step back. I mean, I don't, I'm still not completely convinced that lockdowns are the best way to, to to respond to the virus. But I think that whatever the response to the virus involves, it's go, it has to involve a lot of people staying at home one way or another, whether they're being ordered to on the plane of police action or whether they're doing so voluntarily one way or another that's the only way to contain the virus without an you know incredibly ahead of the curve contact tracing system but without a vaccine. And it's that sort of sense that sometimes you need to take take a step back and look at the big picture rather than get tied up in the details
0: talking of um you know seeing what happened in italy seeing what's happening currently in the united states etc one of the the other things that you discuss in the book is is data visualization and i'm thinking you know john burn murdoch at the financial times has done miracles i think you know on on that front but you also highlight some of the dangers you know about you know whether we can as it were be seduced by pretty pictures could you say something about that
1: so i'm fascinated by Florence Nightingale, who was, is uh, clearly most famous as a nurse, but one of the early data visualization pioneers, and she used data visualization to persuade people of things. She was very calculated about that. She wrote uh, letters to the cabinet minister Sidney Herbert about you know, who who was going to get these framed copies of her diagrams, um, and she was campaigning. She had a sort of public health message that she was trying to get through the entire British establishment, basically, who were not. Persuaded. Her diagrams were were amazingly effective politically. They were, there was a, um, just astonishing piece of rhetoric. But that said, when you get under the surface of what the diagrams were doing, you start going, "Huh, hmm, some of this stuff's a bit naughty, actually. Not misleading as such, but just very the, you know, the, the editorialising disguised as an objective graph is quite strong. So we need to be very aware of the fact that. Graphics speak to us in a very direct and almost uh, unconscious way. Therefore, they can do a tremendous amount of good. They can be very clear. They can win political arguments that need to be won. They can also do a lot of harm.
0: And, and finally, and I and I guess this in some ways brings us back to the territory you explored in another of your books, Messy. You quote Philip Tetlock, who's the guy behind the idea that, that Dominic Cummings has actually made famous, or perhaps I should say infamous in the UK this year, namely super forecasters. Tetlock says, and you quote him, beliefs are hypotheses to be tested, not treasures to be guarded. Why is it so hard for people, well, for all of us um, to let go, if you like, of those beliefs? And and how can we best help ourselves to do that?
1: I should say, I, I know Philip Tetlock quite well, and he was, was he wasn't happy at all. At having his uh, you know, beloved super forecasting associated with the far right or
0: all this. You know, no, I can imagine.
1: He wasn't, you know, he would, and, and I, I've been following his work for uh, at least 15 years and he's an amazing social scientist and there's so much to it. He's so humble. He's so self-critical. It's absolutely terrific stuff. I, I do recommend his actually his. Earlier book, expert political judgment is a lot nerdier than super forecasting, but mm. it's it's you know very very good. Um, so, I mean, why do we why do we hold on to beliefs? Um, there are all kinds of different reasons. Partly, there's a, just a certain consistency in the human spirit. You know, we just we it's just easier to keep going with what you were believing than to change track. Uh, there's that st- status quo bias. There are some interesting examples of this in cautionary tales. I talk about the. Uh, There's a particular oil tanker accident, the Torrey Canyon. And uh, it's basically to do with someone forming a plan and then just not quite having the mental flexibility to go, hang on a minute, this is no longer the best plan. So there's all that. But there's also the fact that we are constantly having our ideas reinforced by those around us. Our enemies want to catch us out in a mistake. Our friends are telling us that we're all right-thinking people we all think the same things together. We'll read the same books, the same, the same articles. We all you know, oppose the same people. And once you're in that, to, to, to say, actually, no, we're totally wrong about that. And I, I should flip my views. It's a very difficult thing to do. It's a very brave thing to do. And uh, most of us are not willing to do it. When the stakes are high.
0: Well, I think anyone who reads Tim's book um, will have a better chance of doing that. The the ten rules of thumb uh, are very, very clearly uh, Adam Braden very clearly illustrated as well with some great stories. And I I know Tim's a very big believer in in narrative as a way of um, getting his points across. So I just want to say thank you very much, Tim, for coming on to discuss your book, How to Make the World Add Up. Uh, 10 rules for thinking differently about numbers. As I say, I got it for my birthday, but it would make a great Christmas present if you're thinking about that or if you're listening to this after Christmas, of course, um, some other kind of present. I'd also like to thank my MEI colleague, Sophia Cassano for producing and all of you uh, for listening. If you enjoyed it, please do recommend and rate the podcast and do have a listen to some of our other episodes. And you can find out more about the Myelin Institute by going to our website and by following us on Twitter. We're also a presence on Facebook and Instagram too. Uh, So without more ado, can I wish everybody a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.